Thanks everyone for joining us for another episode of the Ikigai Project. Today, we're excited to explore the transition of movement and performance. For example, how does the mind and body prepare for a physical challenge like a marathon, Spartan race, multi-day hiking, or canoe trip? In our last episode, we spoke with David Wilson, talked about movement and how we can incorporate movement as a daily habit in our lives. And in this episode, we're going to go into exploring um, what movement looks like, not just for performance, but also the general movement principles that contribute to overall well-being. To inform our conversation, we're excited to welcome Pax Frias. Pax is a senior fitness coach and partner at a movement studio called Restore Human, based in Vancouver, Canada. I've personally had the privilege of training with him for about a year and a half. Pax's knowledge, energy, and optimism are just some of the traits I really admire. He's an incredible mover, coach, biohacker, and we share a passion for learning. Welcome to the podcast, Pax. Thanks for having me. This is going to be great. I love the Ikikai idea, the philosophy, uh, what it what it prompts people to start to look for in their lives. So I'm really stoked that you guys are making this a bigger conversation for people. Yeah, we really appreciate you being here, Pax. And uh, in this season, we've been exploring this topic of transitions and just want to kick this conversation off with a question for you, which is what does transition mean to you? Yeah, um, I think it, what comes to mind first is this idea of praxis. It's very closely related to practice, um, but it's kind of the, the becoming through doing idea. And, and I really think that um, our actions influence our thoughts and our emotions and, of course, our bodies um, so damn much. <laughs> so I, I'm very much in that doing place a lot of the time for the, um, let's say, the gaps that I want to bridge, if you will, right? The transitions I want to see unfold in my life. And I, I need to identify it mentally, maybe I need to think, okay, I want to, um, I want to run better, or I want to understand accounting better, or, you know, whatever, pick a topic, but then how do I get myself to that place? And that's really in those, those small actions that we decide on. So I think that that's what really, I think of when it comes to um, getting from one place to another, it's what actions am I going to take? And, and I've heard of that, right? Is it the thought that sparks the, the body or the actual action? Or is it the movement or the body that sparks the thought? Um, what about doing is so important for you as, as you think about transition? Doing answers the question of whether or not it's possible. <laughs> so I think if I think, oh, I'm going to go and do X and then I don't do it, I don't know. And if I do it and I fail, then maybe I know how to not fail the next time. But it's um, I'm much more um, of a materialist, if you will, or just of a of a you know physical um, person. I think our thoughts are amazing vehicles, but this other concept that could be used is um, um, traction versus motion. So motion, you know, we might feel all this motion when we get excited about thoughts and we get into that brainstorming space or um, or we just feel the the uh, the spark of attraction to something, but then um, it's in the the traction in the like you know picture tractor wheels just digging into the ground or like a cool jeep going up a 
a really steep hill. It's like, it needs torque. It needs strength under those wheels. You need some of that energy. And um, that's where I see myself evolving all the time. I, as much as I can get, um, kind of get into my thoughts and try and clean them up just sitting there. And I, I do meditate. I love meditation, but uh, I don't think meditation is a matter of like cataloging your thoughts for later reference. I think it's a matter of quieting the system so that you can act more precisely when you do act. Curious. So you seem like such a thoughtful guy and a also action oriented guy, which can come like can be at odds sometimes, right? Maybe you can overthink, maybe you can overdo and burn out. Um, how do you tell us a little bit about how you became the way you are? Maybe a bit of that origin story of, of how you grow up and, and as you reflect, you know, why you're the person you are today. Yeah, where did things start? I can't really remember exactly where I came online, so to speak, like where I first was conscious of my life. Like, what's my first memory? Um, but I remember like learning how to ride a bike in uh, Ontario, actually, with my dad. And um, so I I was born in Ontario, I was there as a young child, and then my dad lets go of the bike, and I look back, and he's not helping me anymore, and I'm riding solo, and I freak out, and then I bail. And of course it was a big memory because I totally bailed. So um, that I think was uh, one of my first memories and and it was based around inhabiting my body. And then I just wanted to bike better and I wanted to be able to bike alone and to be, um, to show him as well, to make my dad proud and and uh, to, to enjoy that experience. Um, fast forward, I grew up in Chile. I was homeschooled. That's a big part of who I am. Um, and I had a lot of playtime. So I was able to go and be outside and uh, play with, you know, making a rock wall in the river and then taking a bath in the pool that I made in the river. That was awesome. And then um, learning how to mountain bike with my friends or learning how to rock climb in Chile. Um, my mom taught us at home in terms of like English and math. And that all seemed to unfold pretty well. So I actually didn't have any kind of learning problems from uh, being homeschooled, which I, I don't know if that's rare or not. Like, um, but it seems like when I hear about people who have been homeschooled, um, they seem like pretty well-rounded people um, most of the time. Uh, I don't think it's a matter of only going through school and uh, and like sitting down and learning at your desk for 13 years to actually come out with a functioning mind. Um, so that I did a lot of self-learning, a lot of, um, picking up books that I was truly interested in, not just reading for other people's, um, you know, reading lists. Uh, I, I got really hooked on, uh, sci-fi. So like Dune and, um, C.S. Lewis and, um, Isaac Asimov and stuff like this. And, and all those worlds were really interesting and captivating to me. And I think, all of that was um, kind of what led me to be very curious of the world and be a little bit of a scientist as well. I don't have a science degree, but I like the idea of experimenting with the world, experimenting with myself. Um, what happens if I eat these foods? What happens if I uh, take on this, this movement practice? Or um, how does the internet work? And you know, you just kind of go about learning these things. And um, 
yeah, and then I came finally to to Canada where I was working in the hospitality industry, thinking like I just want to end up somewhere nice and warm and uh, maybe work at this cool like resort somewhere. And um, just like I, I felt like I was uh, a little bit of a, a vagabond and I wasn't fitting into the system. And then I found uh, personal training, if you will. But what we do at Restore Human is very different than that. I found being a movement coach allowed me to nerd out about the science stuff that I was really enjoying. And then also truly inhabit my body. I had that was the biggest transition for me was growing up thinking, I don't fully know how my body works. And then wanting to answer that and transitioning into now really knowing um, what strength feels like or what speed feels like or what coordination, um, elasticity, accuracy, um, rest. Um, sympathetic experiences, right? Or, or like um, exalted, uh, you know, what does anger feel like in your body? How does anger play out? So yeah, long answer, but um, those are the aspects, you know, I think it was just that uh, really wanting to know first myself. And then I was very lucky to find a place that I could work at where I could then help others get to know themselves. Yeah. So uh, you covered a lot of ground there, Pax. Thank you so much for just giving us a bit of uh, an insight into these experiences that shaped you. I think, I guess just going back to a couple things in your story, one is um, what was the, what were the family motivations that brought you to and from Chile? Cause I can only imagine that had a big impact on who you, who you are and, and your influences. And also was, was there, um, what was kind of the reasoning behind the homeschooling? So I think that's really interesting and definitely provides a lot more freedom for outdoor exploration, for example, which I can only imagine has also had an impact. Can you expand on either of those? Definitely. Yeah. With, with the homeschooling, it was um, in part that my mom thought she could do it better and she did. <laughs> and uh, she's, you know, she was looking at the curriculums and stuff. So she's an English major and she, um, yeah, she just thought like, yeah, I can definitely teach these kids what they need to know to operate in the adult world. Um, at least in the foundational stuff, like she could do elementary for us. And, and we did end up doing a few years of high school later too. But um, it was, yeah, I think uh, that plus my mom wanted to be on this adventure with my dad. So I think my adventurous spirit comes from that too. Like their story is my mom was from Scotland. She moved to Canada. She finished university, said like, I need to go see the world, met my dad in Mexico. They decided to travel by land from Mexico to Chile. So that's a, quite a ways down the Americas. Um, they say I was made around Guatemala, maybe. <laughs> and then I was, um, then I, I, you know, my mom was pregnant and then my dad said, cool. So, you know, let's, let's have this kid, let's make a life and let's go to, um, let's go to Canada to meet your folks. So they moved up to Canada and, uh, you know, got my mom's parents blessing and then um, had myself and my sisters and we were young. And my mom said like, yeah, let's just go on an adventure again. Let's go back down to Chile. Let's go meet your folks. So it was in getting to know our families and sharing both cultures. And my mom wanted to, uh, wanting to be um, bilingual and multicultural and allow the kids to be bilingual and multicultural um, and also not, not in the thick of the city, right? So we ended up living on a mountain in Chile in this um, small town. It was like 1,600 people 
which really allowed for all that outdoor time because you didn't have like big malls and shopping experiences and cinemas and arcades and all these things that kids go and um, spend their time doing. Yeah, for us, it was really just um, how do kids learn when they're almost in their feral environment? It's just, yeah, it's it's remarkable to hear that. Um, lots of things resonate with me. I, I really admire how well-traveled your parents were and how open they were to challenging some of those norms. And I think like, yeah, we could probably take a big tangent on kind of the the differences between kind of the industrial revolution of schooling versus some of the things that you described here. But um, it, it's really interesting to get a bit of a glimpse on some of those events that shaped you in those early years. I, I'm just curious. So um, when you mentioned, you know, reflecting on your childhood and having a lot of movement i'm wondering in your position today i'm sure you see kids or parents kind of struggling to bring more movement into their families like what should should kids start thinking about today or parents to support that movement journey I, i'm i'd be really curious because like for me i just you know, in more recent years, I learned how to weight train. And I really wish there was some sort of teaching or support for kids to not just not do like heavy squats or anything like that, but just at least see the potential of, hey, this is what strength feels like, or hey, this is what great movement looks like, you know, that's just smooth from top to bottom. What are some things you would recommend, you know, parents or kids to think about earlier on? Yeah, I think I've come around to how nature is the best teacher um, after chasing a lot of performance stuff for performance sake. But I think the healthiest way we can move is truly through natural terrain. So take your kids hiking, um, go and, and play on the beach with them, um, you know, build sand castles or like build rock castles, watch your toes, right? Don't drop the rocks on your feet. But like, that's part of the experience. Like we need to understand that barbells are also risky, right? Lifting dumbbells is risky. So it just happens to be a very organized, uh, chunk of metal where a rock is less organized. So it's much harder to create insurance policies that protect you against someone dropping a rock on their foot. Um, so, so that's part of the battle, right? It's that we live in um, a system where people are afraid to do anything that's a little bit uh, dangerous perhaps, or, or just that doesn't seem as straightforward as lifting a barbell in a straight line. But I really urge people to go outside and to notice what happens when uh, they take their shoes off and they walk on the beach and they feel the sand and they, they balance over the sandy, slippery rocks. And then they go in the cold water and they feel alive all of a sudden. It's those moments that really create the next layers of health and strength. And, um, and, and a lot of stuff happens under the hood um, that we could get technical about, but it's, it's superfluous really. But in terms of um, your body, then producing a lot of health outcomes. Um, being, being indoors, you can train, train, train. And you can get really strong, but also you're not necessarily detoxing properly. You're not necessarily managing your nervous system state, right? It's so nice to walk through the forest. It's very different than going into a gym where there's pounding music and you're there to like rage and lift weights. You know, it's 
So your nervous system gets a different experience. Um, and then the um, uh, circadian rhythm management part, this is a huge thing in my life recently, uh, that being up and down with the sun as best as we can produces a ton of good stuff for our minds and our bodies. So when people are, are maybe craving a transition in their life, um, don't go bench press at two in the morning. Just don't go bench press at two in the morning, especially not under like fluorescent lighting. Um, if you're gonna, if you're gonna do pushups at, at two in the morning, then do them in the pitch black and get to know yourself from the inside out. But, um, but no, I think people should be sleeping generally when the sun is down and then, uh, and going and, um, being quite active when the sun is up. So, so that's a big thing, you know, teach your kids how to be, uh, connected to the rhythms of nature. I think what stands out from what you're sharing, Pax, is um, developing and cultivating a connection to nature and a practice of appreciating being outdoors as a parent um, is kind of step one, right? Uh, because, you know, there's going to be a trickle on effect to the influence that that has on on kids. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of play, too. It's not just movement for movement's sake, but also having fun. Totally. And then we bring in a bit of the structure that yields really cool results like rope climbing So tie a rope onto a tree and learn how to climb it and then boom you're super strong and you're having a ton of fun and you're outdoors and then you get that whole list of health benefits too so i think that if we can learn how to play more outside this is what attracted me uh, of um spartan racing spartan racing is essentially uh trail running plus all these fun obstacles like jumping over walls and carrying rocks and climbing ropes and all these other cool things. Um, so that's what I was like, that's, that's good movement. That is how I want to move because that's a like really dynamic human doing cool things. Um, so I think that if we can show our kids these good models of what, um, what, yeah, like you said, the, if the parents think it's cool, and hopefully they can give their kids experiences along those lines. Um, and then all the indoor sports are also like super cool, right? I played a lot of indoor soccer and that was super fueling to my, to my soul. It's a big thing in Chile. It was a big cultural thing. Like, you know, hundreds of people would hang out and play games and back and forth and the crowds cheering and all that. And like, there's a huge benefit to sporting as well indoors, but I think um, hopefully we can get both. I've, I've run a couple of Spartan races and the coolest part um, was actually seeing a, a dad and his son doing it together. And I was like, I would love to be able to do that when I'm, I don't know, 50 and my kid can, you know, run it with me. I'd like to just stay fit enough to, to do that in the future. It's such a great bonding experience. So I love how you brought that up. That's great. And Pax, just kind of playing on this idea of, of sharing best practices, at, at what point would you say in your life did you realize that you had a passion for motivating and helping people? That was, I think the progression there was that I started as, uh, I knew I was an extrovert early on. So like I noticed I don't get tired of just hanging out with people and having fun and and just chatting, chatting and chatting and making jokes and, um, you know, reading books and doing homework together and then playing sports and all that, like I was total extrovert. So that then led me to think, okay, so I'm a people person. So what can I do in the world? What jobs can I do where I can really be a people person? That's why I studied hospitality. I was thinking, 
cool. I can help people tour through incredible landscapes or get to know beautiful cities. I can help. Uh, I, I worked as a concierge at a hotel doing just that, you know, selling tours and educating people on what was beautiful to go see and, and the history of things. And um, that I think connecting people to experiences was, was then uh, in practice for me in motion. And then I, uh, I think I, I, like I mentioned earlier, I just had that deep question of like, how the hell does my body work? You know, I kind of have this handle on my personality, um, but I have uh, incurred a bunch of injuries in my life. So like I've broken my right arm twice. I broke my left foot. I dislocated my right knee, dislocated my right collarbone. Um, I fell out of a tree and there's this like really weird sensation in my third rib. I'm on the left side. Um, and so I was, first of all, needed to fix all those things or understand like how um, hopefully uh, to, to keep them all right. So they wouldn't hold me back from being able to play. And, uh, then there's the, the biohacking side of things, the, you know, what is health? How do we, how do we age gracefully? Um, what things make us feel like shit, you know, why does my brain work sometimes? And why does it feel like I have brain fog on other days? So those, those things then started to, um, become more of a curiosity after I, I figured out I was an extrovert who could be a people person. So yeah, then those things kind of coalesced and I ended up here being able to teach people about mind and body and together. We have so much to cover that we won't, we won't go into it here, but I'm, I'm just listening to you rattle off your, your injuries and uh, wondering if you and I have different risk tolerances. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I think we can uh, do like a post episode talking about how each injury happened. But um, I think this is a good point for us to transition to talking a little bit more about kind of well-being and, and movement. Um, so as you started exploring more about, you know, um, understanding your body, essentially, like you were saying, you know, how did you get started with that? What was the process in which you slowly started building up that knowledge uh, uh, or understanding of of how your body works. I did start with why, um, as you know, Simon Sinek says. I think like in that case, it was a mental thing of like I want to be high performance. I don't know what that means, but I wanted to be high performance. Like I was, you know, I was listening to podcasts a decade ago about these cool people who are using supplements or bulletproof coffee or um, Olympic weightlifting or whatever to like upregulate their feel-good hormones, their brain power, their whatever. And I'm thinking, cool, I want high performance. So I just identified that. That was a moment where um, thought preceded action. And then it was all of the actions that taught me what that thought actually was. Um, so I think, uh, you know, it, it definitely started with bulletproof coffee um i was thinking okay what's this what's this ketogenic diet all about um what is fat metabolism and i had to educate myself on how our bodies burn sugar or burn fat for fuel that was a really cool deep rabbit hole then um what are muscles right and how do muscles work and then okay well i want muscles because apparently muscles are cool uh, and then i realized what they do as well so not just how they look but what you can do with them which is even more cool um, so it was, 
it was those things. It was just kind of one one stumble after the other of I'm going to try this thing, take notes, um, get to this place where I feel yeah I I know how it feels to to be in ketosis. I know the pitfalls of it. I know um, uh, what not to do, and then uh, I know how it feels to strength train and what not to do and stuff like that. And um, it's just been the praxis of one interesting idea after another. It's great. I, it's almost, uh, like I said at the beginning, like biohacking, right? I don't know if that's how you describe it, but having a very hypothesis-driven way of approaching learning about your body and tracking those patterns. Yeah. So I'm curious now, like I I was also into the the bulletproof and I, I went to a conference in New York and his Mark knows well, about this. I knew, I knew Peter would light up when he said bulletproof. <laughs> yeah, I don't do it anymore, but I had that coffee for like a year every day and, uh, you know, got really into ketosis and um, yeah, all of the science, which I think I kind of compare it to, you know, how I think we're all kind of around the same age. We read Harry Potter and that got us into reading in general. You know, it's like things like that, that get us into health and well-being, even though they might not be the long-term solution. It's, it's really cool that it brought us in and now we're, we're much more educated, you know, 10 years later. I'm curious, Pax, now that you've learned so much since, you know, you started this journey, where, where are you at with your thinking around well-being? What does it mean to you? Yeah, I think well-being is always in transition. Those sciences are, I mean, science is the practice of disproving itself, right? So you have a hypothesis, you go, okay, everyone goes keto. Two years later, everyone suffers these problems. Like, okay, great. So we need to look at it a bit more deeply. Um, so uh, I think it's as long as people have a consistent feeling of um, capability in their lives, like if you wake up at whatever time you wake up um, and you want to you want to get out of bed, you want to go do stuff, you want to help the world, you want to help your friends, you want to practice your ikigai. I think that's well-being like whatever you're doing that gets you that energy that life energy those are the the practices that are working right some people it's tai chi or aquafit or um what have you but i think we know when we do something that's toxic like we know when we start to burn the candle at both ends and we're, we just, you know, as an extrovert, I suffer from this for sure. This is one of the hurdles for me is to say no to things and to be able to set boundaries in my calendar and stuff, my weekends and um, not work a 12 hour day and then go to someone's birthday and then do some running training and then do it all over again the next day. Like it's way too much stress. Um, so that I think I've learned how not to do the wrong things so that I can wake up with energy. And uh, I hope that people have that as their guide. You know, what what truly makes me feel wholesome? Um, uh, I, I steer away from saying balanced because balance is a little bit tricky, but um, but in harmony with my desired outcomes. I've set these targets, I've chosen what I want to do, and then uh, I'm moving towards them in a way that's, we talk about gracefulness here at Restore Human. 
you know, because if you if you want to run fast and then you run as fast as you can down the street for as long as you can, the risk of injury goes up exponentially every minute. <laughs> so the way forward isn't to actually run as fast as you can. It's to know your limit and then to slowly climb through speed training and stuff like this. So making it making it a much more balanced or sorry, not balanced, harmonious practice. Yeah. And just playing off on that, uh, I know in my own personal journey, like it was later in my life that I saw and understood that connection between rest and performance for me personally. Can you just, these are meaty topics. We, you know, we don't have time to go through them in super big depth, but can you talk to us a little bit about like how you see the connection of nutrition and rest to a movement practice or well-being? What role do they have um, at a high level, I guess? Yeah, I think um, it's quite evident that if people are on a calorie deficit for too long, they're going to start to feel less energetic. Calories provide energy, um, stuff like that. Uh, if people are uh, skipping sleep too often, again, you're going to feel tired. So certain baselines are um, are there, you know, like, yes, adequate sleep, adequate food, um, adequate hydration. It's like, Adding a little bit of salt to your water can make a huge difference for people. Um, eating a cucumber a day has made a big difference for me recently. I just love cucumbers now. They really rehydrated me this one time before a run. And uh, and so now it's my pet pet um, vegetable. Well, it's a fruit. Um, so so that I think, you know, I think it's it's uh, again, it's like consistency. Everyone has their patterns. So you, you just watch yourself one week and you look at those patterns and you go, Hey, um, by Friday, I feel trashed. And maybe that's because I've worked so hard. I've done you know, 12 hour days every day before that, or maybe it's because, um, I stayed up late every Wednesday and Thursday watching movies and eating popcorn. And so like, at, you know, I, like, we don't need this huge bowl of popcorn at midnight, likely a lot of people. And so we, we then offset how the body self-regulates, right? And so um, it's, it's those things, I think, that, that people could pay a little bit more attention to. Um, what are your patterns? And how does the flow of your week make you feel at certain times? Like, how do you, um, this is something we're doing at Restore Human right now. We have an event coming up called the Restore Human Race. And it's about a 90-minute experience that, uh, actually two hours in terms of people moving from tandem canoeing to running to sandbag carrying um, these different stations where you get to do it's a race as many laps as possible and get points. Um, so how do people fuel for that? And you can practice that in advance, right? You don't sign up for a 10K and then just show up on race day and you're like, I'm just going to wing it. Let's let's try not to wing these things and and think, okay, I'm planning a hard workout. My hard workout is going to be on Wednesday. What do I have to do on Tuesday so that my hard workout goes well? What do I have to do on Sunday? Like the more we can find these patterns, the better. So that's high level. And this is how I think about my day and then my week and my month and my year. Um, if I want to summit a mountain and it's going to take five days and I have to carry 60 pounds on my back, then I start there and then I reverse engineer what I think I might need to do. So that that experience goes well. It's so interesting just to reflect on on what you're sharing. 
we've seen this actually as we interview different guests with different topics from relationships to career self-reflection it's coming up again how are you aware of the way you feel after you eat a meal the way you feel after you have a long sleep a short sleep and so on and so that's what's really standing out to me is um corporate incorporating more awareness and we might talk about this a little later but just when you and i were doing training together when we were looking at my nutrition, for instance, doing a food diary, not forever, but just for a week or a bit of time just to create that more ongoing awareness. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, along the same lines of what other guests have been talking about, just clarity on what do you want to achieve? And then working back from there, I think we all really miss this step where we just like get that gym membership or start a program and we just go without any clear reason on where are we headed and why does it matter to us? And I'm just curious, Pax, when you work with clients, you know, it, it might seem obvious to like have goals, but what have you seen um, as things that work when you help your clients set goals better and and start thinking about this a little bit more um, thoughtfully? Yeah, I think there are a lot of goals um, that show up later through the process like my initial goal with people is um to create body awareness first of all like okay how does how does your neck move how do your wrists move stuff like that then um they might have already done some running so then okay is the goal with your running to run farther or faster or uphill or so you know we can ask all those questions and um the goals do this is so beautiful about how we work at restore human it's it starts with a blank canvas and then we just start to push the body a little bit and, and test it and like okay what about balancing on this leg what about lifting an object um with you know we're doing a, a single leg hinge on this side what about hanging on one hand um and where do we see asymmetries where do we see a uh, lack of mind body connection Okay, we build on those, and then we build um, those practices towards those those sports or peak experiences. So then, like someone, if, if they're already a runner, just inhabiting their body better, they're going to run better because they all of a sudden have a different connection to their spine, to their lungs. They can breathe better. Um, so that I think it's it's the mirror. A good place to start is just mirroring. Okay, what is what is happening when you move? What's happening when you breathe, when you exert yourself, what happens at high intensity, where do people break down? And this is part of the goal setting process. First, you have to kind of um, see where people are at. So take stock of these things. And then you can say, hey, what about running a fast 5K? Is that attractive to you? Um, what about um, hiking up that mountain that that is in your backyard and that you've never hiked up because we're in beautiful Vancouver and there's so many mountains? but Maybe you haven't hiked up this one yet. Um, and then sometimes people are, uh, they're very specific. You know, it's like, I'm a triathlete. I want to get better at triathlon. Awesome. That's a nice straight line to go through. But um, I'm sure you've heard from a lot of people in your circles. Uh, I have tight hips. What the hell does tight hips mean? That's not a thing. I mean, it's a, obviously an experience in your body, but someone's tight hips are different than someone's tight hips. So, so do you want to do the splits? Is that the outcome? Will you feel um, completely satisfied when you have uh, perfect splits? And then are you comfortable doing the splits or do you just want to force yourself into that shape? 
those very different experiences with the same goal. So um, yeah, those layers are really important, like the the why and the, the how we get there, and then um, then we can reverse engineer how much commitment it's going to take. You know, I've got to remind people that if they want to perform like an athlete, they have to train like an athlete. So you're not going to do much in one day a week. You know, if you hit the gym one hour a week, that's going to be um, good for maintenance of certain things. But then you want to be putting in the time. Uh, maybe like three to five hours a week. And then if that's self-directed, awesome um, to, to really get an athletic outcome, let's say, because we know that, you know, being an athlete kind of is certain, certain levels of performance. So again, like philosophically, we just unpack those ideas and think, okay, that's where you're at. That's where your, your um, interpretation of strength is or interpretation of flexibility is now let's continue that conversation. And just building on that, Pax, it also strikes me that not a lot of people know their why. And so, you know, to your point, Peter, around saying, oh, it's important to take a step back and think about your goal, that can be daunting, right? And so what I like about what you're sharing and how you work with clients, Pax, is that they might come in with a clear goal. They might not. Either way, it probably isn't going to be where you end up going anyway, because, um, you know, I liken it to an analogy of, of a tree, right? You have the, the branches, the trunk and the roots. And sometimes people share what's on the branches, but really what they, their motivators are, are in the roots. And that's not going to be apparent in a first session. It might come out as you start getting to know them, know their injury history, et cetera. Um, so it's just kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, you have a clear goal of being a better runner. Cause I know that's one of the practices you love, but it's not the only thing we do in your sessions because there's so much more ground to cover and ideas to play with. Um, so that, you know, uh, I think getting someone stoked on, um, natural movement, on being able to crawl around on the ground, like a lizard or a cat, and then showing how that can improve something like running. And that if you get stuck in being only a running specialist and you only do running workouts, you either miss out on the fun or you get a repetitive use injury as well, because you didn't like diversify your training. So it's, um, yeah, it's those little things sometimes that we need an outside perspective on. Like you said, like uh, a tree ne- can't necessarily see its own roots. Maybe if it's looking down, you need someone under the ground. So on the topic of um, building awareness, so Mark wears an aura ring. I wear a whoop band. What are your thoughts on you? Do you have a aura ring? Okay. Um, so curious to know, what do you think about, you know, wearables and how they fit into giving us more data and understanding of how our bodies are working. I think they're great. I think they're generally um, off the mark by a considerable percentage, but so in terms of how objective they are, I think they're only so good. Um, but I definitely think they can steer behaviors very well. So if someone's willing to be steered, then you can get so much out of um, a wearable. I mean, I have gotten incredible performance gains from doing heart rate training, right? I have a Garmin watch. I use a heart rate strap so that it's a nice, clear reading. The watch isn't always the best on the wrist. It's decent. And it'll, again, it'll give me like a ballpark, maybe within 10 to 20%, which is great because then the trend is always going to be off by that same amount. So I can still train with the watch, not have a heart strap, watch a trend, no pun intended, and um, still get the outcome that I want. So 
I think, yeah, using your heart rate for fitness goals is an awesome tool. Using the Aura Ring for lifestyle goals, uh, another awesome tool. I have an app called Streaks, and it's just a habit tracker. Uh, it's not a wearable, but um, in terms of like outsourcing a little bit of this work uh, to our devices, you know, my phone prompts me with all these uh, good uh, habits that I'm developing. So on Streaks, you just get a streak of how many times you've done a certain habit um, in a row, or um, for me, it's like eating fish two to three times a week. I've got it at max three in the app, and then I want to eat fish or seafood three times a week, hopefully. And so I keep pressing the button and rewarding myself for eating good quality food. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Are there any other metrics that you track aside from like heart rate, maybe heart rate variability? Yeah. Yeah. Heart rate, heart rate variability, uh, my sleep score based on the aura ring. Um, I have like a rough understanding of my macronutrients. I think that's something that people can get aware of, not down to the uh, individual gram of protein that they're eating, but it's a big difference when you have 40 grams of protein one day versus 120. So knowing what uh, leads you to one side of that equation or the other is I think important. Um, also like fiber, you know, the standard American diet has like 12 grams of fiber in it or something or some appallingly lower number. So, uh, please eat more fiber people. If, uh, if you, if you can, so that's a whole can of worms to open up in terms of fiber and in terms of people digesting it well. And, you know, the whole thing about being too gassy or, um, what sources the fibers coming from and stuff. So that might be for another podcast, but, uh, fiber is an awesome macronutrient. I think it should be included in conversations of macronutrients. We talk about fats and carbohydrates and proteins. I think we should totally include fiber as the fourth. And I have a ballpark on how much of each of those I'm getting in a rough week. And I can see how my body's adapting to those things. Um, what else in terms of metrics? That's actually an area I, I would stand to be more aware of. What uh, Do you just have a, a free app or something that you like to use for that? No, I go by um, just gram amounts per meal. Okay. And then I kind of hit uh, gram, like, and because it, it's on the package as well. So I'll see like, you know, red lentils. And then I'll do two big scoops of red lentils in the pot. And I'm like, cool. I know roughly this meal has 60 grams of protein and I'm eating it with my wife and I'm eating probably the lion's share of it because she's a much smaller person than I am. So I'm getting my, my 40 grams or something in that meal. Got it. Well, you know, I think, you know, these are all tools, right? And they'll be as powerful as, you know, the user decides to stay disciplined and follow them. And like you said, there's a big room for error. And um, yeah, I mean, I think really at this stage, any brand of of tracker can provide people with a bit of data that could be of use as long as they're aware of of, of some of those discrepancies and some of the data. But um, it's interesting to get your take on a few of them. I knew you talked earlier in the interview, Pax, about... Um, the importance of nature, you know, in regards to parenting. I know you're just someone who's passionate about getting outside and spending time outside. I want to just take a couple minutes to learn a little bit more about that importance. And, um, you know, what are some, some key things we can be thinking of, uh, as it pertains to our connection with mother nature? Yeah. Okay. Big, big takeaway for people. Sunlight provides the energy for all life on this planet. So let's get to know sunlight. Um, 
we have sensors in our eyes and all over our body that interact with the different wavelengths of light that the sun is emitting. And it's not just the visual spectrum, obviously. Um, there's a lot more that comes from the sun than just like the colors of the rainbow, right? So there's all this radiation, like ultraviolet radiation, um, UV radiation that people uh, may or may not be afraid of for different reasons in terms of burning their skin and stuff like that. So um, I think having the appreciation that the sun produces all life on the planet, first and foremost, will then lead you to find out um, how to interact properly with the sun. People have different skin types, for example, so not everyone is going to be able to go outside for hours and, and not get burnt, you know, but um, I hope people aren't afraid of the sun. I think in our modern culture, there's a lot of this fear around the sun. And I think it comes down to a dosing thing to make it very simple. I think people can learn about the dose of sun that they need to produce vitamin D. Here's a good app for everyone. It's called D-Minder. Um, so D-Minder right here, D-Minder, like it sounds, um, will calculate where you are in the world. And it will tell you at what hours of the day you can go outside um, and produce vitamin D on your skin. Mm -hmm. So then cool. you can go and, uh, and you can say, okay, I'm going to be 40% um, exposed. And it explains in the app, like 40% might be I'm um, wearing a t-shirt and shorts. So my legs and my arms are mostly exposed to the sun. And then it'll do a calculation. Okay, you were out there for 20 minutes. You produced a certain amount of vitamin D. And, um, and you can roughly keep track of your levels there. So like if anyone has a vitamin D concern, then you can use that to track and uh, top yourself up and realize how awesome it is to have high vitamin D because <laughs> it feels amazing. So um, that's a big part of it. And then circadian rhythm management, you know, I think people have heard about circadian rhythm management by now. Um, and it's that uh, your sun or so your eyes pick up the the position of the sun on the sky and it will tell your body, okay, this is the beginning of the day or it's the end of the day, right? Watching a sunset is a glorious experience. And then if your circadian rhythm is um, in harmony with the flow of nature, with the flow of the day, you'll probably start to feel tired around sunset or a couple hours after. Um, I don't think everyone has to go to bed at the same time, but in general, all mammals on the planet, so all animals that are very much like us that have similar circadian biology, will go, um, will will get tired as the sun goes down. There's there's a lot of nocturnal mammals as well. You know, cats are awesome. I love cats, so cats are more nocturnal. But um, outliers aside, humans in general are circadian uh, creatures. They're they're not nocturnal, but they're sun creatures. So we can uh, get into that rhythm and uh, notice how that makes us feel. And I've felt so much better in my life after I started to watch the sunset a bit more diligently and um, to watch the sunrise when I can too. Um, you know, now the sun's coming up really early, so I'm not necessarily up at 5 a.m., but I go outside in the first few hours of the day, um, try and get my computer outside. So, you know, I know we all have lots of computer work to do. So if you can do your computer work, next to a broad open window uh, or outside in the light at some point in the day, then you're doing yourself a huge, huge favor.
Yeah, that's one of the things I'm really stoked about, getting more people outside from that angle, just like interacting with the sun, even if we're on our devices. There's no time where I think about the learnings that I've had working with you in circadian rhythm than when I'm traveling and hit different time zones and like everything gets messed up. And um, yeah, I don't know if you have any any thoughts on just some some tips for how to get adjusted to a, a new part of the world when you get off a plane. But um, I always think about that when I travel. Definitely. Yeah. So something that we've talked about before is as soon as you get off the plane or as soon as possible, go and be barefoot on the ground without shades on. So okay, you're taking in the sky light. The amount of light is being calculated by your brain and it's saying, oh, okay, it's roughly 4 p.m. Um, and then being barefoot on the earth is a, a different part of that same energy system, which is being grounded. So um, the earth has a lot of these free electrons and by us making contact with our skin, um, kind of like getting reverse electrocuted, if you will, right? So like, you know, if you're wearing a rubber glove and you touch a live electrical um, system, like a, a cable, you're not gonna get electrocuted. Take the glove off, you touch it. Of course, our skin is conductive. So we feel that current. So there's this reverse current on the earth and it helps pull static charge out of our bodies. And it is how we evolved. So it's, it's very beneficial to our nervous system, uh, which has all this photoelectric energy going through it all the time. Um, so being barefoot and then looking at the sky, maybe finding a nice little um, oceanfront patio, putting your feet in the water and sipping a uh, nice tea when you land would be a great idea. <laughs> um, then uh, the other thing is like uh, doing a workout, for example, doing a workout will produce an acute stress response. So you land, you produce an acute stress response, which will then start to decay and lower cortisol levels later in the day. So you could use a high intensity workout when you land as well to have this quick rise in cortisol, which would then promote a drop in cortisol later in the day to sleep better that night. And then if you're really going like across time zones and stuff, you can manage the amount of light in your environment. So you could use something like um, an eye mask or blackout curtains, or um, those fun orange glasses that people wear, right? Blue blocking glasses to, um, to, to kind of trick your brain into thinking that it's not daytime because blue light is associated with daytime. So there's all these little things we can put in place to simulate being nighttime when we want to have a sleep in an environment that has a different time zone. Yeah, I was uh, contemplating wearing my blue blockers. Uh, I'm well known by Mark and my partner for looking like a Asian Bono wearing uh, those those glasses. But um, yeah, they do really help. And I think they also actually trigger my brain to start thinking it's bedtime. Um, so it's it's actually kind of like a brain thing that it does to, to trick me into, okay, get ready. You know, you got an hour left before you go to bed. So um I'm curious. So, you know, for folks living in, you know, northern climates, US, Canada, you know, our winters are super long and it's hard to interact with nature in, in kind of a consistent, enjoyable way. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts, ideas on on how we can better enjoy, you know, the six, eight long months if you're living in, you know, Canada uh, during the winter. You're in Toronto, right, Peter? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So, so yeah, you're going to get cold adapted every season. Hopefully. Um, what does cold adapted mean? Well, you teach your body to be able to produce heat in lower and lower temperatures. Um, we're constantly 
uh, in a in a homeodynamic state with our environment, right? So um, when it's hot outside, we sweat because our body's getting rid of heat. When it's cold outside, our body's starting to turn on processes to produce heat. The initial response is shivering because movement produces heat. But after becoming cold adapted, you don't have to shiver as much because your body then just produces metabolic heat from this stuff called brown fat, which is just a bunch of mitochondria packed around your neck and your internal organs. And um, the human animal can very effectively produce that stuff seasonally. So we are totally capable of adapting to these seasons and continuing to enjoy being outside. It's a little bit more strenuous for you than it is for us here in BC <laughs> to uh, enjoy all four seasons, but definitely doable. Um, so that's a whole other topic that people can get to know, exposing your bodies to the cold um, and, and yeah, learning like how to do it safely and um, how much is enough. And sometimes it's just like once a week, you know, so let's say you go lie in the snow for two minutes once a week during the winter. And that's one of the papers that was published. It was showing people at that point get the benefit. So it's like two minutes once a week, not hard. Um, it just does require that, that shock and that discomfort. But uh, otherwise, I think, um, yeah, I guess climate is very, very different in Toronto. I, I remember being uh, in Barrie in Ontario and it was like eight foot snow banks you're just walking in this white tundra of a city. We could probably go on a lot of tangents. I, uh, it's funny. Some of the listeners might know me from, from working together. And one year I actually did like a polar bear plunge in Lake Ontario in February as like the result of hitting a team goal in our workplace. And, um, yeah, I mean, the body can adapt, you know, if you, if you, if you challenge it. Well, I, I think what's interesting is just uh, deliberate cold exposure, like making it part of your routine, like instead of kind of shying away from it, you know, embracing the cold and yeah, uh, letting your body adapt to it. That's definitely something I'm taking away. So, yeah. And same thing goes about light, like just go outside when it's light and, you know, try and get to bed shortly after. I know the days are much shorter in the winter, but like um, still sun exposure for a few minutes to to tell your brain that it's daytime is important. I remember telling you, like, I usually end my showers every day for the last four minutes or so on cold water. And that has been a huge help, as as you mentioned, Peter, for cold exposure. And I've ever, uh, in, in a thoughtful way, because you know how to challenge me, you had said, well, what would happen if you didn't just end your showers with cold water? You started them with cold water. And I was like, I don't I don't know if I could start. I don't know if I could do that just yet. Um, it, it's a different kettle of fish, I think. Yeah, it's brain freeze is a real thing. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> okay, well, I, I you can tell that we're passionate about well-being and all things included. So I want to make sure that we... We get to talk about a few different areas before we wrap up today. Um, one thing that I think would be really valuable for listeners and to tease apart is just kind of getting to know what you're doing at Restore Human a little bit better. And not just for people who are in the local area that can come be a part of it, but also just because I think the methodology of the Restore Human way is so unique and so impactful and valuable. And you'll probably get a sense from hearing how you've shared today, Pax, what it might entail, but how would you kind of Describe how it's different than a typical gym. Yeah, I'll paint the picture. We start with um, a studio that 
doesn't have any machines outright. Um, we have a treadmill so that we can be nice and scientific with how we look at running, but we don't have um, anything except for free weights otherwise. And we love the sandbag, for example, because the sandbag is such an awkward object. It, it'll the sand will pour to one side and then the other side and you can just throw them on the ground and you can hit your knee with them and hopefully not and very likely not get injured if, if I hit my knee with a dumbbell it's going to hurt like a, a bad and um, then we have these cool logs so we salvaged logs from the beach and we brought them in and we sanded them down and they look absolutely gorgeous and um, so we kind of have this timber frame gym set up where people can hang from the logs or they can crawl on the log or they can do some balancing. Um, and we want the wood to be a reminder of nature. And we want say the um, uneven texture of the wood to be a reminder of nature. So we train barefoot. And then when you're walking on a log that um, is, has got some divots and some little cutouts and a little bit of coarseness, your foot, turns on like there's this sensory experience right you go uh, you get more information into your body um vitamin texture is the so vitamin t vitamin texture is, is a great concept by um katie bowman katie bowman is a movement nerd she's a biomechanist uh that people should read if they have the time um and then we uh yeah we go about like i said earlier assessing where people are at playing with them being good training partners to them. The Restore Human Method includes the science of exercise and fitness, but also the art of coaching and the art of creating relationships with people. And like you said, challenging people, you know, like it is my job to find the edge of your comfort zone and then to see if we can push you past that edge safely. So I love that part of my job. You know, I don't do it in any kind of um, malicious way or anything like this. I, like I, I just love seeing people supersede themselves. And a lot of the time it's not suffering on the other side. It's all this amazing enthusiasm to see that you can do stuff that you didn't think was possible. So that's really how we work at Restore Human. Yeah. That we hope that answers the question. A lot of times it's mental, right? And I'm just thinking about times where you've pushed me in the right way to to hit those edges and uh, yeah, just being grateful for that. And I try to explain kind of the philosophy and the way that Restore Human works with people. It's not easy, but I, I, it's really like restoring human potential and helping people in a holistic way reach their goals um, and build resilience, which I think is so important. And you know, we're lucky here on the West Coast and hopefully our listeners in any way can engage with nature, but how do you set yourself up so that you have the tools and the movement capacity to go out and have those wilderness adventures deepen that connection with nature. And um, it's something I, I really admire about what what's happening at the studio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll add that like stuff that I see missing in a lot of fitness practices is stuff like falling or carrying objects for extended, extended periods of time, like on your shoulders or in a backpack um, which is exactly how we then have to go and do a hike, right? So if I carry a couple of kettlebells for 50 meters, it doesn't exactly resemble how I need to operate on a six hour hike. So we try and replicate these things indoors. We try and tell people like, okay, wear this backpack. Like Mark, I was pulling up your um, scores from our training together. You started at 40 pounds for our step-up test. And you built up to 120 pounds in a backpack for a step-up test, which is 
Awesome. I have not been able to take too many people to 120 pound step up test. So um, good on you for being super strong and uh, being able to be resilient. Like you said, it's not comfortable. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel good physically, but it feels very rewarding mentally. And then you can think, okay, if I have 50 pounds in my bag for three days, that's actually going to feel easy. That's part of it. It's, it's unpacking um, real life scenarios. We call it contextual transfer. So how is the movement we're doing here transferring into the context of real life? And it should mimic it like 90% of what movement looks like in real life, of how loading happens in real life. Yeah, my, my wife, Jess, loves that learning that you share with me because I've challenged her on some of our hikes to, hey, why don't you carry a bit more weight on your backpack to help build up your capacity? And so she has uh, your influence to thank for us uh, going out of her way to carry manageable load on our back to help increase our, our capacity. Just curious. So I love the name Restore Human. And like Mark was talking about, you know, restoring the human potential. Um, what kind of transitions do clients come with? Like, what are they looking? If, if you look at kind of a broad array of clients that you work with, what typically is the transition that they're having a challenge with? What are they trying to, to restore in their lives? Yeah, it is a like it's hard to pick one movement but people end up inhabiting their bodies much better um and the outcomes from that are pain management um performance but let's say like getting up and down from the ground right you say okay get up and down from the ground to someone for two minutes and do it in as many different ways as possible or do it with a sandbag on your shoulder and at first like if you just tell someone on the street to do that they don't have movement education they might only have two ways of getting up and down from the ground. And they just repeatedly do those two ways. Um, and maybe because of tight hips, like we talked about before, so maybe they have tight hips, so their body can only physiologically do two ways of getting up from the ground. I mean, of course, it's going to be very variable, but um, it's more than showing them like, look, you, you think fitness is this big, and I can show you that fitness is 20,000 times bigger than that. Like fitness is all these incredible things you can do in three-dimensional space with or without weight, fast or slow, um, with uh, interesting cognitive layers to them, right? Like trying to beat your own scores, you know, set personal records, that's cool, but also um, trying to do something the most graceful ever, like do something the most silently, get up and down from the ground with 80 pounds on your shoulder without making a sound. And it's so cool to train with these layers so that I think the transformation is opening all those doors for people and then seeing what doors they walk through. Sometimes it's, it's just um, fixing alignment, fixing pain, fixing old injuries. Then it's what the heck do you want to do with your body? Because it's a very cool thing that you have here. Yeah. I mean, just sharing one personal example um, that I take away from having done sessions at Restore was just even in between sets, quote unquote, uh, of doing hard exercise, there's this opportunity for exploration and play. And you would give me, you know, between heavy sets of pushing myself physically, because that was my goal, uh, a balancing 
exercise to, you know, it's low impact on the muscles, but it challenges me in a different way. And then, or maybe it's a, a light obstacle course and I'm jumping around and going on the log and crawling. Um, I don't know if you want to comment on that, but, but, but those are great ways to use rest in a, in a more meaningful way, I would argue. Yeah, I think that that's definitely part of people's transitions. You present them with an obstacle course and you say, go. And a lot of people are going to be afraid of injuring themselves or unaware of how they could complete the obstacle course, maybe the technique of rope climbing, like we talked about before, um, or swinging on a rope or something like that. And then um, it's the like, the hard work needs to happen. Of course, that's how we develop strength. Let's lift heavy weights. Cool. Or that's how we develop um, like fall capacity. You need to throw yourself at the ground at some, some appreciable speed to know how it feels to fall. So we, we do the hard stuff and then we don't have to get stuck there, right? We can then play all these games in between. We can um, have a laugh about uh, throwing a med ball at each other and, and connecting to like how the hips pivot and how the, the foot pivots and stuff and um, sensing the power difference, right? Okay, how do I get, how do I throw this med ball faster? How do you learn that? You just kind of, you practice, okay, maybe your, okay, your back foot is totally turning the wrong way. What if you turn it this way? And then the med ball, boom, gets all this power added to it, right? So it's little things like that, that start to really give people a much more robust understanding of their fitness. Awesome. Oh, uh, man. Well, this is, we're getting to a close you know, I, one thing that has, has gravitated me towards uh, partnering with you, PAX has been your passion for learning. Is there anything you want to share about something you're reading or listening to right now that's capturing your attention? Definitely. I'm glad we, uh, I'm glad we got to, to this, of this concept or, or topic of like what, where I'm learning from. Cause you know, I think people learn from me and that's great, but I'm not that original. I haven't written any books yet. I take from a lot of people. I, uh, I then share the good and leave what I consider to be, uh, not for me. So um, David White. So the quote from my mom from ages ago is to use the poetry. And this has definitely been a big part of my life is to, to open up to the much more esoteric, much more magical, if you will, um, lens through which to see the world. And that's poetry. And um, it was uh, one philosopher who said, that you can't access worlds to which you don't have language. And so I've made a point of absorbing interesting language so that my mind can constantly change perspectives. And, and, uh, and so I get as much play mentally with poetry as I do physically with, you know, a hundred different fitness toys. Um, and then two names that really stand out there recently for me are David White and John O'Donohue. Um, and I actually did bring, a, a poem from David White for everyone today. So I hope this lands in terms of our conversation. David White, sometimes. Sometimes, if you move carefully through the forest, breathing like the old ones in the old stories who could cross a shimmering bed of leaves without a sound, you come to a place whose only task is to trouble you with tiny but frightening requests conceived out of nowhere but in this place beginning to lead everywhere requests to stop what you're doing right now and to stop what you are becoming while you do it 
questions that can make or unmake a life, questions that have patiently waited for you, questions that have no right to go away. Hmm. Love that. Yeah. And it's, we really appreciate you sharing that. And even before we started recording this podcast, we were talking a little bit about questions and the importance of those in our lives and asking the right questions. And it's such a great way to, I think, wrap this podcast up. Um, and we always leave our guests with one more question, which is uh, about Ikigai. Um, and I'm curious, you know, what does Ikigai mean to you, Pax? Yeah, Ikigai for me my my meaning i think it's knowing what's possible and for me that's been physically first and foremost because that's my job but i really look up to people who are asking that question knowing what's possible what 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 can we change and how would that affect things so growth mindset through and through um I don't want to get stuck on something in my life and feel like, oh, this is it. This is me. I have a short temper for the rest of my life. Mm. I want to be able to change those things as they come up, as I identify them maybe as something that I would like to change. Other things, I think, become embossed on our personalities because they're part of what makes us shine. And those things don't require changing, you know, so I think... Um, or of course, they'll transition with you over time. But I hope I never lose this level of enthusiasm for um, movement, for teaching people movement and for uh, getting people to think critically about movement, but also just stop thinking, stop overthinking about it and just go play. Um, so both ends of the spectrum and everything in between with movement, that that is definitely part of the ikigai. It's it's the growth mindset overlaid into what can I do, what's possible with my body, with other bodies, with people in community. Um, how do I participate on that physical level with the world? And um, and so in terms of yeah, in terms of evolutions there and like that finding purpose and meaning is it in it is uh, is to grow it um, very organically and to grow it locally first and then to see where it goes but you know restore human isn't so enamored by global scale as a company we're a small company and that yields us the chance to be very rooted back to that tree analogy we're very much in our roots here at restore human in who we are and the small team that we are and the people whose lives we affect in our local community um, and a few people across the world as well. I have a client in Indiana, I have a client in South Korea. Um, I've had people from other countries as well tap into Restore Human over the years. And um, that's, that's a beautiful thing. And I think if we grow to continue to help other countries, then that's awesome. But, but right now it's, it's really about what is a, what is a local and sustainable and um, meaningful life within a community of health pursuing people? It's so interesting. I think uh, I also hear like having your ikigai might be connected to that desire for continual learning and and growth, as you said, a growth mindset. And I'm thinking of the phrase variability is immunity. Like I'm definitely coming away with this conversation with that idea of like 
sure, you can hold on to aspects of you that are serving you, but at the same token, there's always an opportunity to find adaptation, to find new ways to grow and to learn. Um, so I appreciate you you sharing that. Um, and I, I also know just as we think about ways you connect with your community that um, when I've been traveling, one way that I've really enjoyed staying connected to you is through your Instagram account. It's very active. It's at human packs, H-U-M-A-N packs, P-A-X. Um, yeah. Anything else you wanted to share about ways people can engage if um, they wanted to coming out of this conversation? Definitely. Yeah. Thanks for asking. I think restorehuman.com and go to the client stories, go into the articles that the team has written and um, check out some of the more detailed explanations on those, those journeys that people have been on with us and get an idea for the why behind how we work here. Um, Because you won't see as many photos of people with bigger biceps. Um, You'll see people uh, who are just happier and maybe at the top of a mountain than than where they started, right? So that's, um, yeah, that's enough for for me as an Ikigai. If If I can affect the lives of, a thousand people, ten thousand people, maybe, and take take them on those training journeys. Then, uh, for this period in my life, that would keep me very fulfilled. You know, we'll probably have to do another podcast in five years and check in then. <laughs> yeah, the Restore Human Instagram account is also um, an avenue where I, I, I take a lot from as well. So, if folks are into social media, uh, I also know that you know, for instance, you're an ambassador for a number of companies. Is there any that you wish to share or talk about? Definitely. I work with Vivo Barefoot quite closely. They just opened a store here in Vancouver. So shout out. It's amazing. Yeah. I'm stoked. First store in North America for them, actually. And uh, they, yeah, I mean, it's it's a really cool brand. So I won't wax too poetic about them, but check out Vivo Barefoot, everybody. Um Something else to to Restore Human, actually, shameless plug would be we have an event coming up this summer. It's called the Restore Human Race. It's not super competitive or anything. It's just along the lines of our mission of getting people outdoors and nature together. Um, So there's a canoeing element. Hopefully, you would like to maybe learn how to paddle for 30 minutes. Again, you don't have to go super fast. Just uh, if you're willing to learn, we can help you. And then there's a running component and then there's a sandbag carrying component and it's teams of two people and just Google uh, Restore Human Race on Eventbrite if you want to check out more info about that. Peter, we got to get you on a flight. Come on down and do it with me. (laughs) Let's do it. Pressure. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, so August 20th, I'll see you guys there. Sounds awesome. Well, I... Time sure flies. We're uh, we're we're well into over an hour, and Pax, want to thank you for your time. Um, thank everybody for uh, listening as well. We'll come back again uh, with another episode. But for now, take good care, everyone. Thank you. Right on. Thank you so much for listening. Special thank you to Hugh for the theme music. You can check them out at herehue.bandcamp.com. If you're interested in learning more about the Ikigai Project, you can check out the blog at ikigai.blog. And if you found this content useful, please subscribe or tell a friend or family member about this podcast. I'll see you next week for another episode of the Ikigai Project. Take good care for now, everyone.
Lord. 